Will Trump's legal defense work? And what happens if it doesn't? I'm Matt Robeson. This is Beyond Politics. We're available, of course, wherever you get your podcasts and on the Blue Amp channel on YouTube with a new set of Trump indictments. We are all focused on what do they mean? How strong are these sets of charges? What's going to happen to Donald Trump? And really, what's going to happen to the rest of us, regardless of how the outcome of this trial unfolds? And we have an outstanding guest to walk us through all of those questions. Christy Parker is counsel at Protect Democracy, a cross-ideological nonprofit group dedicated to defeating the authoritarian threat and building more resilient democratic institutions. She spent 15 years as a federal prosecutor at the Justice Department and received her law degree from a little known school in Cambridge, Massachusetts that we will not name here. Christy, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thank you for having me. I wanna lean on your federal prosecutorial experience first. You have a new piece in the New York Times this morning. We're recording this Thursday, August, third, and you're pointing out, per the title, that it's no surprise that Trump is being charged under a Reconstruction Era law. It's a law originally designed to go after the KKK. I, I don't know if that's a delicious coincidence or not. For our non-New York Times reading audience, what are you arguing in your new piece? So we are arguing that the use of 18 U.S.C. Title 18 of the United States Code Section 241, which is one of the three statutes that is charged in the indictment of Mr. Trump. It's a Reconstruction Era statute that was enacted, of course, after the Civil War and is part of an effort to protect nascent multiracial democracy that we were beginning to forge at that time. And of course, the Civil War happened, it ended, but large pockets of the country never, certainly at that time, did not accept and over the course of time have not accepted um, yes. that vision. 150 for, years later, the and they're still States. revolting. Yes. <laughs> so we had reconstruction. It made some progress, but ultimately, I think most historians would say that it failed in its ultimate goals. We had a backlash that was incredibly powerful. We had Jim Crow laws implemented for a hundred years after that. And it wasn't really until the successes of the mid 20th century civil rights movement and the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that I think historians would say that we had you know, a straight-faced democracy in this country where everyone had the actual legal right to vote that could be enforced. So I think one of the things that we have seen in the rise of Trumpism is really just that sort of longstanding resistance to multiracial democracy bubbling back up to the surface. And it's been there all along, but one of the things that Trump has done is just really bring it back out into the forefront, where we had a, a few decades where it really was not okay for a major politician to speak in openly racist terms about what America should look like. He has really blown that up and put us back into a into a, a framework where we've got an entire group of people that really is advocating for a democracy that really only includes a certain kind of person. And it seems fairly clear to us from what we've seen that much of the Trumpist movement was a real backlash to the election of a Black president. We've seen the 
backlash to that unfolding. So what we saw on January 6th with the presence of Confederate flags and white supremacist symbolism all over the place, a noose hanging out on the Capitol steps, the presence of militia, militias with racist ties, and the, the carrying of a Confederate flag into the Capitol. We were seeing not just somebody who was trying to hold on to power, but who was trying to hold on to power for a very specific purpose and vision of the country was really delegitimizing the votes of lots of Americans, very specifically attacking the votes of non-white Americans. So it really makes a lot of sense, unfortunately, that the uh, that the Reconstruction Era law that existed to fight the earliest backlash to multiracial democracy has become incredibly relevant again to charge the conspiracy that the indictment alleges Trump led that culminated in the insurrection on January 6th. It's a very interesting kind of evolution that you're pointing out here, the very slow unwinding of the protections of people's access to voting, access to our democracy that we've seen happen at the state level at the instigation of the Republican Party. And in a way, the January 6th plot that is outlined in this indictment is really all about the ultimate culmination of that vision. Let's just nullify all of the votes that may not have gone our way and construct this alternate reality that we will manifest as real through the power of the federal government to say, we won. So what you're pointing out in this article is that it's incredibly appropriate to charge Donald Trump under this law that ultimately emanated from, you can't do this. You can't deny people's right to vote. Right, yeah, and I think what you point out there is, and there's been a long effort throughout history and certainly recent history to suppress votes and to keep people from voting in various ways. And what we've seen over the last few years is just an elevation of the idea of who even cares about votes. Only one group of people has a legitimate right to be in charge. And the only elections that are legitimate are the ones that group of people win. And if they don't win, then the election is rigged and they're not going to accept turning over power. And I think one of the real concerns here is that this won't just be a one-off with Trump, that we're really moving the Overton window in a direction where one major faction of American society just does not accept that voters decide elections and that elections even matter. So that's, I think, the scary territory that we're moving into. And I will say that I think there are, while it is definitely one political party that is leading this, I think it's it should be pointed out that I think Many members of that party have awakened to what is really going on here, and I want to call them out and give some appreciation to the folks who have recognized what's going on here and have called out their own political tribe in the last few years, because I think they have been incredibly important. I do want to talk about the non-acceptance by the Republican Party of, hey, we assign power in this country through voting. I want to put that in the parking lot, though and just talk for a few minutes about the new set of indictments and how strong this case is and whether the early defenses that we anticipate from the Trump side are gonna work. First of all, on the strength of the case, as a former prosecutor, what did you see in this indictment that stood out to you? And is it possible 
just to hit you with a two-parter because mm -hmm. one part isn't like enough. Is it possible that Jack Smith could have more up his sleeve that's not even in the indictment? I can answer the second part first with, I think it's very, pro the very probable answer to that is yes. Prosecutors want to put enough in an indictment to particularly one like this, it's very common to do what's called a speaking indictment and lay out, lay out a coherent story that anyone who reads it can read from beginning to end and understand, okay, I see what they're saying here. I see what they're saying happened that was wrong. And I see what is likely the evidence that is going to support that. And that is because as you've heard the current attorney general say over and over, the Department of Justice typically speaks through its work and does not try cases in the media. It certainly is not supposed to. So these indictments are a way in which the prosecutors can show their work and help the public to understand what's going on. Having said that, you want to put enough in there to tell a story, but it is usually the case that you don't put everything in there that you possibly have, and you don't signal every single witness you might call, and that is for a lot of reasons. But I think that it's pretty likely that there is more lurking out there that we could see at an actual trial of this case then appears on the face of the indictment. With respect to the strength of what's in the indictment, I thought it was a very compelling document. It, it lays out a very clear account of what happened here and why it happened, that this was a scheme that from the very beginning was intended to ensure that Donald Trump stayed in power regardless of what the election results were and that the central feature of it was to foment falsehoods about the election and the validity of the election. And then beyond that, to take very specific steps to try to undermine the election. So with these, first of all, the submission of fraudulent electors in the states and a scheme to try to get the states to somehow undo the actual election results. Moving on to another phase of trying to convince the vice president to do something that everyone knew was not part of his legal authority under the Electoral Count Act. And then once Mike Pence did not go along with that, then leveraging the mob that assembled in order to continue to try to delay the proceedings and continue to try to cajole people to reject the lawful votes that had been sent in by the states. So I think it tells a very coherent story. It tells a story that meets the elements on its face. One of the things I think it very clearly signals here that I think not everybody has really focused on is that the witnesses against Donald Trump are all going to be Republicans. This is going to be people who work for him, people he chose to be close to him, Republican officials in states who are going to be the ones telling the story about all of the fraudulent and illegal things that happened here in order to resist the peaceful transfer of power. So any idea that he is the victim of some sort of radical left witch hunt is going to be belied by who the witnesses are. And I think we're going to see what we're going to see from Mike Pence, who is definitely going to testify in this trial, is going to be pretty riveting stuff.
and not the stuff you would say, oh, like, yeah, you're being brought down by a witch hunt. He's being brought down by his own vice president. Politico opined this morning that there are five pillars of Trump's defense. This is complicated. Five is a big number for people to keep straight. As a matter of fact, a, a well-known political consultant was once talking to a Senate candidate and asked him the classic political question, why do you want to be a member of the U.S. Senate? And he said, we face five great challenges in America. And the consultant says, let me stop you right there. For the purposes of this campaign, we face three great challenges. Okay. I, so I want to break this down as much <laughs> as we can. There are these five pillars of Trump's defense. Three of them in my mind are logistical and procedural. One of them is let's delay this. Let's slow things down. A second one is let's argue that this is all political in order to, it's a corollary of the first one to try and put it off past the presidential election. And the fifth is, let's argue for a change of venue because Trump can't get a fair trial in Washington, D.C. because it's all political. All right. I want to dispense with those for a second. I want to focus on the two that would relate to the trial itself and the ultimate finding by a jury of his guilt or innocence. The first is the free speech argument that this is all just criminalizing speech. He has an unfettered right to say whatever the heck he wants. And the second one is this idea that mens rea, it's what I call the George Costanza defense. It's not a lie if you believe it. And <laughs> he really believed deep down, he's so deluded. It's not a crime to be deluded, basically. And he was so deluded that despite this mountain of evidence that Smith is going to present that everyone in his orbit knew and said, gee, Donald, we really don't think any of this is true. It's actually pretty Looney Tunes. It's one staffer was in the indictment on page 13, apparently wrote, this is bullshit beamed down from the mothership. Despite all that, it's not a crime to believe these things truly. Okay, so would you tell us if you were Jack Smith, if you were the prosecutor here and you were sitting down anticipating these two lines of defense, how would you overcome them? What do you make of them? Let's take a break. We'll be right back. One of them is a very specifically legal defense, which is going to be resolved. There's two courts here. There's the court of a public opinion and there's the actual court. And this free speech argument where Donald Trump styles himself as a First Amendment freedom fighter, taking a hit for all of his followers for just expressing his sincere views is one thing in one realm. But it is very unlikely that any juror in his actual trial is going to consider that issue. What we're talking, if if his if the charges against him are barred by the First Amendment, that is something that we, would be decided on a motion to dismiss by the trial judge. And with respect to the merits of that argument, my view is that they there aren't very many merits to that argument. He's a, the indictment was very clear in saying this is not a prosecution of Donald Trump for making generally false statements or for lying generally about the public to to the public about elections election fraud who won the election this is about very specific types of false statements and statements that are tied closely to the kinds of statements that you have to make in order to form an agreement with someone else to commit a crime 
every conspiracy is formed with words. People utter words to make agreements to do illegal things. That's not a First Amendment protected activity. But with respect to the wider stuff here, it's we have all sorts of laws in Title 18 that prohibit people from making false statements to official bodies, lying to the government in various ways. Like you can't lie to the FBI. You can't lie in a courtroom. You can't submit false mortgage documents. You can't lie to the IRS. All of that stuff is well established in the law. And so things like submitting false elector certificates, where you've got a bunch of people claiming that they were the lawful election electors of Michigan and that they met and cast their votes in a way that they obviously did not do. That's a, what I've called before a bread and butter type of crime and not something that is protected speech. Similarly, the things he's accused of doing are essentially coercing, cajoling, haranguing, his vice president to do something illegal that was not within his lawful authority to do. Mike, we want you to totally disregard the Electoral Count Act. Similar calling up Brad Reffensberger, one of these other officials, and saying, I know who the state of Georgia certified as the winner of the Georgia election, but I want you to set it aside and find me 11,000 or whatever votes. None of that is protected speech. I don't think the judge is going to have much trouble deciding that, and the jury is not going to hear a word about that. He's not going to get to go in and make legal arguments that the judge has already determined are not relevant to the case to the jury, and the next time he'll have a chance to do it would be on appeal if he's convicted. And again, I don't think the D.C. Circuit is going to have much time for it. And quite frankly, the currently composed Supreme Court probably is not either, because I don't think they're interested in undoing a huge chunk of the criminal code and empowering a lot of people to commit crimes in order to save Donald Trump, to whom they are not beholden, as they showed during the election season two years ago. So it sounds, just to read that back to you, as a legal matter, since the judge will get to decide on this motion early on, the whole argument, this whole, it's all free speech, save it for Fox News people, okay? You can say that as much as you want on Fox News, which is the only place that people think that's like a thing, but it's not going to be a factor in the legal case. And that leaves us with this question of intent. And right. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to read in a little bit to what you said, although I have a little bit of education on this from Paul Hodes, who talked about this on our show yesterday mm -hmm. a little bit. What it comes down to there is that, I'm gonna quote here, Donald Trump's attorney. He says, what we will argue to the jury and will win is that President Trump was arguing for the truth to come out in the election cycle rather than truth to be denied. He's just asking for the truth to come out. And so look, if Donald Trump, if all he had done after the election was go around making speeches saying, I don't believe any of this is true, we won, it's all rigged. If he had just done that and nothing else, then that's fine. He wouldn't be under trial, he wouldn't be facing a trial today. Definitely it, would not. It's the overt acts that get you in trouble. It's conspiring. It's the fake electors scheme. It's the calling Brad Raffins. It's the overt actions. And again, in, in that sense, your state of mind now, but this, I'm going to turn this into a question. Does this all essentially then come down to his state of mind and the question of, was he acting corruptly 
or is he is this defense flimsy as well it's definitely going to come down to the prosecution's ability to prove to the jury that they've met all of the elements of the different offenses. So in the for the obstruction count, for instance, yes, there is an element of that where they have to prove that he acted corruptly, as the language is, in order to, to show the jury that they've met all of the elements of the statute. But it is actually not going to come down to, as many people are saying, whether or not the prosecution can get inside Donald Trump's mind and present a picture to the jury of what he was thinking about whether or not he really won the election. It's not. It's not. It's really not. I think they absolutely are going to put on evidence, and it was clear in the indictment that they're going to put on evidence that he actually well knew that he did not win the election and that there are any number of different ways that they're going to show that he knew that. And that just makes it a really easy question when asking, was there a conspiracy here to commit fraud on the United States? Because he knows he didn't win the election. But having said that, while they have a ton of evidence to prove that, they don't actually have to prove that in order to meet the rest of the elements of the offenses. Because even if he believes that he won the election, that doesn't make it okay to get a bunch of electors to say, I was the real electors from Michigan and not the people Michigan says it was. Regardless of whether he actually knows that he won the election. He certainly knows that Michigan didn't think he won the Michigan election. He certainly knows that Georgia didn't think he won the Georgia election. And he knows that they had electors who said, no, we voted for Joe Biden. So when he's part of a scheme to submit electors that say something different, he knows he's doing that. And that is the relevant knowledge about that's, falsity there. That's really interesting. So because that's a that is, as you say, a little bit different than a lot of kind of the popular discussion that's happened over the last 24 hours. So let me just read that back to you. So he's he has four charges that he's dealing with here. One count of conspiracy to defraud the government, one count of conspiracy to violate rights. That's that post reconstruct civil, right. civil rights statute one count of conspiring to obstruct an official proceeding that has to do with the counting of the votes and one count of actually obstructing an official proceeding what you're saying for him to be convicted on all four of those counts jack smith does not have to prove that he really believed that the election was rigged that he really believed that the big lie he doesn't have to prove that he just needs to show that trump did these things. He conspired to defraud the government with these false slates of electors. He conspired to violate people's rights by taking away their valid votes. And he conspired to obstruct and then did obstruct the official proceeding. And all of those things have nothing to do with the state of mind. Is that true? They have to do with his state of mind in the sense of his state of mind about the particular things. So he has to, yes, they have to prove that he knew these electors or he and his co-conspirators knew that these electors were not the real electors of exactly. various states. He has to know that submitting them to the National Archives or submitting them to a state body containing false information, he has to know that he's doing that. But again, like even if he does that believing delusionally, and really let's take a second to think about the fact that He's talking, his lawyer is talking about defending this case by saying that the 45th president of the United States 
who had access to the nuclear codes was essentially a delusional person who did not listen to the attorney general, his White House counts, anyone around him, numerous state officials, and believed something that everyone else virtually in the country, except for other deluded people, know to be true. Let's just think about that for a second. But even if he believes that delusional thing, that does not make it okay for him to then submit false slates of electors or he and his co-conspirators to submit false slates of electors. Even if he believes he won the election, it's not okay for him to solicit Mike Pence to just ignore the legal duties under the Electoral Count Act to open the envelopes submitted by the states and count the votes and declare Joe Biden the winner. And it's I certainly, see. yeah. So it, his foreknowledge of the fact that these overt actions was illegal, which is well documented in this indictment. That's the thing that that gets him, not his belief in right, that the That is right. God but okay. having said all that, there's also another misconception here with respect to the issue of proving what he knew. There, are, I've seen a lot of analysis like, this is weak because you can't, how are you ever going to get inside Donald Trump's head? I really wish that our journalist friends who cover these issues would actually go pull a set of jury instructions from one of these trials and look at what a jury is going to be told that they need to do in order mm -hmm. to determine whether a person had a certain intent. They can go pull the jury instructions from the many hundreds of trials that have been held in these very similar cases. And what they'll learn when they see that is a jury is going to be told straight out, you will almost never be able to know exactly what is in a person's mind. Intent is almost never proven by what we call direct evidence, where somebody writes down on a piece of paper, goes and says, I'm doing this because I don't believe it or whatever. That, that intent is almost always proven by circumstantial evidence and that you are allowed to draw reasonable inferences from, from people's actions. From people's actions. And so, That's so in, in truth here, I would argue that while some people are claiming the evidence of his knowledge that he lost is weak, I think it's overwhelmingly strong. He's got every single advisor around him telling him, including Bill Barr, telling him that you did not win the election. He's got people specifically telling him about these various claims he's making about like dead people voting or whatever. No, that is not true. He's got wow. the state officials telling him that. And so the prosecutor is going to be able to get up and stand up in front of the jury and say, in order to believe that he doesn't know that he lost the election, you have to believe that he didn't listen to a single person who told him that he didn't win the election, that all of these things were false, that he didn't listen to his own attorney general and the advisors that he appointed to be around him, and that, that he alone, the president of the United States, was not able to comprehend reality. But again, per your point, Jack Smith may never have to give that speech. Never. He may, he may only have to give the speech where he says, here is the evidence that Donald Trump was made aware that these schemes were illegal. That's all he needs to establish 
for Trump to be found guilty. And what you're saying is that the jury instructions that you can expect here is just look at the actions, look at the actions. That's all you need to determine corrupt intent. And so this whole thing that we're debating in the media right now about don't you need to get into the mind of Donald Trump, the sick labyrinthine ways that he might have decided I really did win this election. That's a red herring. It doesn't ultimately matter. It really is. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Again, I think it's very important for the for, for folks to actually go look at jury instructions because mm -hmm. that is what prosecutors are going to argue to the jury. That's what they're going to take back to the room to deliberate. And, and well, yeah. Yeah. Two, two quick points about this. One is this is exactly what we went through in the first Trump impeachment where the defense by Republicans of Donald Trump was, you never heard him say on the tape, let's have a quid pro quo, because that's not how this, this thing happens. That's not how crimes happen. Media bosses don't say, but media, wow, that was, there. there's one for you. There's a Freudian slip. Mafia bosses don't say, I am going to commit a crime. Will you crime with me? And that's exactly, you just need to look right. at his actions. The other thing is, I think you're right that there's a lot of very facile, very surface level media analysis on all kinds of legal questions and on all kinds of politics questions. And I'm just gonna put in a shameless plug for my own piece, which is on the homepage of newsweek.com right now, where I am in a debate against Monica Crowley, the former <laughs> assistant treasury secretary under Donald Trump, in which she says, these indictments are the fuel that is firing Donald Trump. And I'm saying, no, this is media nonsense. These indictments are hurting Donald Trump. The very surface level media analysis of, see how Donald Trump has risen in the polls at the same time as he's gotten these indictments? See, they're helping him. By that logic, I have a roost. And the fact that it crowed this morning caused the sun to come up. It's not true. I unpack all of that in the Newsweek article. There you go. I plugged my own piece. So let's, let's broaden this. Actually, one more very <clears throat> fast procedural one here is there are six unindicted co-conspirators named yes. in, in this indictment. Is Jack Smith not indicting them at this time in order to speed up the process of going after Donald Trump and the trial of Donald Trump and keep this trial streamlined? I certainly think that's why Donald Trump is indicted by himself. They, they, there may well be indictments coming very soon of the other six, and they may be indicted altogether or separately as well. But with respect to the charge against Trump, I think it was very wise prosecutorial strategy to indict him alone precisely because of the speedy trial issues. If you indict, you can indict all of the co-conspirators together usually, but if you do that, then you have seven or more defense attorneys. You have seven opening statements, seven closing arguments, seven cross-examinations of witnesses. So that's going to make a trial longer in and of itself, the trial process longer, but it's also going to make things like the pre-trial process, excuse me, longer as well. So it, it definitely makes sense from that standpoint of making this as speedy a trial process as possible and as streamlined a process as possible to indict Trump 
alone. And I think that there may well be, there's a lot probably going on that we can speculate about, but we don't know. I think some of those folks may already have cooperated and are planning to testify uh, in a trial of Donald Trump. Some of them may be being given an opportunity to think about how it feels to be named by number in an indictment and about to be indicted uh, about how much they really want to sacrifice in their lives. For Donald oh, you're, Trump. he's giving them the prisoner's dilemma. Oh, I love this. This is, <laughs> yeah. boy, you prosecutors are so clever. All right. It's terrible. I think it's time to return to the issue that we put in the parking lot and that we were originally going to talk about, which is the main thrust of your work and the work of your group, Protect Democracy, which is the authoritarian threat that faces America. And I don't want to put too fine a point on this. You lauded the efforts of Republicans who are standing up to this threat within their own party. And that is very fair and very important to say. But this is not a both sidesism. This is not a what about. There is there's not a parallel to be had here. This threat is coming from one party. This has been building for quite some time. My previous two-time guest on the show, Norm Ornstein, wrote a whole book about this in 2012. Yes. And he, he's identified this has been building for more than a decade. Now, I'm going to probably inappropriately draw together two different threads. The first thread is something you wrote in the New York Times this morning. You pointed out in describing the appropriateness of applying this Reconstruction Era statute to the Donald Trump case that there is a long predicate here of these right-wing Republican groups assaulting our right to vote. You point out, this is your paragraph, several lawsuits have been filed by our group and others among the results. A restraining order was issued against armed groups that surrounded ballot drop boxes in ways that intimidated voters. The Proud Boys were ordered to pay more than a million dollars in damages for desecrating the property of a black church and a jury ordered 17 white nationalist leaders and organizations to pay more than $26 million in damages to nine people who suffered physical or emotional injuries at the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally in 2017. Still pending her lawsuit seeking damages against those responsible for January 6th, against those who organized a car caravan that threatened to drive a campaign bus off the highway, and against Mr. Trump and others for seeking to deprive black voters from having their votes counted in the 2020 election. So what you do quite brilliantly in that paragraph is you connect the dots between all of these kind of lower level incidents and the January 6th insurrection. It's all part a tapestry of attack on voting rights. The thread that I want to connect is the other end of it. That's the input. That's we are going to try to hold on to power by denying people from exercising their right to vote in a democracy. Then there's the other end of it, which is Republicans, once they have power, simply ignoring the law. You have Jim Jordan, 400 days into ignoring a congressional subpoena. You have the Ohio legislature just ignoring the Supreme Court order to reverse their gerrymandered ma map. The Chief Justice chose not to hold them in contempt because she thought basically that it would be a PR problem. And she thought that wasn't the right road to go down. But make no mistake, they were in contempt of court. The QAnon shaman who pled guilty with a show of contrition, wants to reverse that plea. Alabama has just been ignoring the U.S. Supreme Court on their redistricting. Texas has ignored a DOJ order. And you've got Donald Trump's entire Project 2025 order, which is all about if he has power once again, totally consolidating power within the, the White House, ignoring the prerogatives of the rest of the executive agencies, politicizing everything, 
and removing the independence of the Department of Justice. So to me, this is all part of a continuum of Republicans basically saying, we're going to do anything it takes to attain power, and then any decision by any branch of government that goes against our exercise of power, we're going to ignore or try to essentially erase. That's my view on it. Am I being paranoid? I wish I could say yes, but yeah, I think, I do think that what we have seen is an escalating movement in this country to ignore the basic tenets of the rule of law and democratic society and posit that both minority rule and ignoring the law is okay so long as they maintain power. I saw, I think it was a quote by Timothy Snyder a few days ago who said- The Yale professor. Yes, Yale professor, who, and author of the very useful On Tyranny that was very prescient. Wonderful blog. Yes. Highly recommended. Yes. But he said, when we talk about polarization, in the country, we need to talk about what the polarization is around. And it's really around, it's the polarization between people who believe in the rule of law and people who don't. And that is a definite thing. We've just got more and more, it's always been the case that individual, we wouldn't have laws if everybody was okay with just following the rules without deviation and with no correction. We wouldn't have a criminal justice system. We wouldn't have any rules and laws. So it's always been the case that the expectation was that certain individuals will stray. We have a system of separation of powers that are are the framers of the Constitution designed out of concern that human beings would naturally try to aggrandize power. And so creating a system to try to keep them from doing that. But what we're seeing now is just really an entire movement of people on the right rejecting the very idea that law matters and that the rule of law matters. And how, you know, that is why our organization exists to try to combat that. That is not an easy problem to solve. And it's very simplistic to say, but at least two things that have to happen are more people from the traditional Republican Party need to recognize where we're going here and that it's not going to end in a good place, that it's not actually going to end in the kind of power for them that they want and be better than they have been at standing up to these things. If Donald Trump had been convicted in his impeachment two years ago, we would not be sitting here now. The Republican Party would probably be having a contest where they were able to nominate. Trump may very well win the 2024 election, but I think most political consultants would not really say that he's exactly their best candidate and that they could be in a much better position against an unpopular incumbent that they than they might be with someone like Trump. Getting those folk, more of those folks to actually do the things that needed to be done. It seemed like Mitch McConnell was getting there two years ago, and then he put his finger in the wind or was worried about the Georgia Senate elections or whatever, and couldn't quite bring himself to whip enough votes to actually convict Trump in that impeachment and get him disqualified. For The founding event of the United States wasn't the Revolutionary War, and it wasn't the election of our first president. It was George Washington laying down power. Right, it right. was the accession of John Adams. It was, and in fact, there was an entire movement, a group built up 
it was the group was called the Cincinnati, essentially after the Roman general who was dragooned into service and then laid down power. He didn't try to become a Caesar. And that was the model that George Washington emulated. And I think what we're seeing here is that Republican after Republican is making the opposite calculus. They're essentially saying, I don't care about the trajectory of the overall country or the overall democratic enterprise of the United States. I care much more about continuing my own hold on power. That's what Mitch McConnell has decided. That's definitely what Kevin McCarthy has decided. Each time, as you say, they've put their finger in the wind. They've tried, oh, maybe I'm going to try to say the line has been drawn. Lindsey Graham did that for five minutes after <laughs> right. the insurrection. And then he said, that's it. I've had enough. This is literally a quote. I'm done. And th there he was moments later. Actually, Trump's my guy because I really want to keep my grip on power. And uh, it's pretty sick. Yeah, no, I think that's all true. And then I think to finish my two-parter here, I also yeah. think that the rest of the country, people who do not live and breathe politics every day, who are not extremely online paying attention to this stuff all of the time, but who I think are themselves people who think, yeah, it's a pretty good idea to have a democracy. It's a pretty good idea to have voters decide elections. We shouldn't be having violent insurrections at the Capitol when someone doesn't want to leave office. A lot more people from that group need to take the responsibilities of citizenship seriously and take participation in democracy seriously. And I get that it's hard. We all have busy lives, but don't let the Moms for Liberty be the only people who go to the school board meeting. Don't let those folks be the only ones who run for lower level local offices. Don't let them be the only ones who run for state, state House of Representatives. Get involved, take ownership of the country, recognize that this fever isn't going to break all by itself and recognize the real harm that could be done if the movement that Donald, if the things that Donald Trump is talking about doing in a second Trump term came to fruition, a whole lot of people would suffer in ways that they are probably not currently focused on. If he were to fire the entire civil service and replace them with political cronies, people might find it very difficult to get things like their social security checks and things that they expect to make their lives work on a daily basis. If he starts weapon openly weaponizing the Department of Justice against individuals who cross him, that's a very dangerous world to be living in. A lot more people what I've called it the silent majority, need to wake up and make themselves heard and make sure they never miss an election and make sure that they're present for all of the things that decide the rules that govern their lives. I think that's actually a perfect note to end on. And I want to give just a couple of quick reference points for people who are wondering what Christy was re referencing there with firing the entire civil service. We did a whole show on that with Congressman Jerry <laughs> Connolly, who's led the fight against Donald Trump's plot to do this. It's called Schedule He is F. my congressman. Is he it is your happened? congressman. He is exceptionally awesome. He was our guest last summer when all of this was emerging. There was reporting emerging about this. I refer people back to that episode. And it, what it essentially boils down to is that Donald Trump, if he reassumes office, would give people a loyalty oath. And your ability to get things like veterans benefits, social security benefits would come down to, are you a loyal red hat wearing MAGA Republican or not? So I, I commend that to people. The second thing is, I was going to ask you as the final question on the show, 
okay, how do we fix this? How do we solve it? But you gave the answer already, which is it's involvement and it's not running for Congress. It doesn't have to be that. It can be a lot more simple and a lot more grassroots. We had Amanda Littman, the chair of Run for Something on this show also last year, talking about the fact that 80% of local and state positions that we could run for go uncontested, especially in places where it's, they're Republican leading. And you can solve this. You can fix it by getting involved. Maybe you don't need to run for office. You can do something even smaller, more local. It seems like when we're facing this onslaught, this whole mindset, it's the Republican mind virus that everything's political, it's just red versus blue. There can't possibly be a legal motiva motivation for prosecuting Donald Trump. It's all gotta just be political. It's false, it's insidious, and that is the road to hell, essentially. And you can fight that and you can head that off by getting more locally involved. So I'm going to leave people with that thought. Christy Parker of Protect Democracy, people can check out your op-ed in the New York Times today, or if you're hearing this tomorrow from yesterday, and all of your work at Protect Democracy and all the many places you're quoted, including the Washington Post, the Atlantic, all over the media. Thanks so much for being with us on Beyond Politics. Thanks so much for having me.